Thank you. Let's pray together as we come to God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for every aspect of your word and even this rather long section we're looking at this morning. Thank you for the day that it represented when the king stood before the people and blessed them. Thank you that we have a king who stands before the throne and blesses us. May our meditation here this morning lead us to think more about him and give you thanks for him and his intercession for us. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you know, we're in this rather long section of 1 Kings chapter 8 this morning. After seeing, in these last few weeks, the construction process of the temple, the importance of the furnishings that were an important part of the temple, the glory of God filling the temple, and now Solomon's prayer, which is one of the longest, if not the longest prayers in the scriptures. Right up there with the prayer of Nehemiah in that book, chapter 9, and the prayer of Jesus in John, chapter 17. Now there are long prayers and there are long prayers, aren't there? The Pharisees were known for their long prayers, long and flowery, that weren't necessarily uh, to God but more often about themselves. And the Puritans, who were nothing like the Pharisees, uh, were also known to pray for 45 minutes in their pastoral prayers. That would take some endurance. Some public prayers can be a little bit of a trial with a lot of repetition and unnecessary sentences. But in this long prayer of Solomon, there is nothing wasted. And like many others we find in the scriptures, it is a model prayer that we can learn from. Now what do I mean by the phrase, a model prayer? Just this, that Solomon's prayer is not something that you or I can take home and say, well I'm going to pray Solomon's prayer. Because it was prayed at a particular time, on a particular purpose, a particular occasion, at an event where it was most appropriate to pray this prayer. And so it's a model prayer in the sense that we learn from this prayer. We learn about prayer from this prayer. We learn about God from this prayer. We learn from this prayer about the God to whom Solomon prayed. And we learn from this prayer about the prayers we make to Solomon's God, our God. Let's think about those two things and then there's a third that follows. First, in verses 22 to 30, let's see what we can learn about the God to whom Solomon prayed. The God to whom Solomon prayed. There are a number of things to note under this heading. Uh, For a start, he is the God of covenant love. Verse 23 tells us how Solomon began his prayer and that was with a praise-filled consideration of God relating to who he is and what he has done. 
And so we read that Solomon prayed, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. Now it's important when you pray how you begin to pray. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray and said they could call God our Father, he did more than just introduce a new concept to them, but made it clear that they were included in the family, that he and they were brothers. Solomon began his prayer with addressing God by his covenant name, those four letters, Y-H-W-H, God's covenant name, Yahweh, the I Am, the self-sufficient and eternal one who is the only God, saying of him, there is no God like you. There is none like you in heaven above or on earth beneath. And saying of him that his character is love and faithfulness, showing steadfast love to his servants who walk before you with all their hearts. Solomon then reflected on the God who is faithful. In verse 24, is the God who made and kept his promises. The gods of the ancient world were described as being mean and evil and vindictive who would change their minds and renege on their commitments. But the Lord is faithful and true to his word. Prayer that rushes into God's presence to dump our needs on him with no thought given to past faithfulness is prayer that falls short of the mark especially when in verses 25 to 26 we see how Solomon used this past faithfulness of God to plead for further blessings and answers. Here is a case of holy argument that Solomon presents to the Lord. The way we are supposed to argue our needs before God, we do that by reminding God what he has said, not because he suffers from memory loss, and needs reminding. Not because God has changed or forgotten as we pray to him, but we most certainly are needy. And why is this way to pray something we should adopt? Because when we pray God's promises back to him, we are taught what we ought to want. Our hearts are challenged to desire what God has promised. Our faith is built up to expect that God will work according to what he has promised. And when the answer comes, it will be a noticed event and a reason for even more praise. Then Solomon reflected on the God who is both above us and yet can be known. He recognises that God is both holy and great and asks in verse 27, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house I have built. How can an omnipresent God that is a God who is everywhere dwell in a house? How can a holy God dwell among sinners? 
The modern man will say that here God is like an unpopular politician who is looking for approval and votes. But Solomon's view of God is very different. God is above us and not like anything else in all creation. He is not glorified man. He is distinct and unique. He is transcendent in that he is above his creation. He is imminent, I-M-M-A-N-E-N-T, in that he is knowable apart from his creation. And Solomon's mind is blown at the thought that God is going to dwell in a temple. He knows that he's not like the idols of other nations, but that the, the idea that the creator of the universe would do that almost seems contradictory and nearly blasphemous. He is astounded that God would be willing to dwell in a temple, to stoop so low as to be in a place where he could be found. He had a sense of wonder at the fact that God would dwell in the temple, making me wonder how we feel about the God who would dwell in a sinner and turn an idol-worshipping heart into the Holy of Holies, where access to his presence is granted at any time. Let's not forget the wonder and make sure that we use this amazing privilege we have before our God who now dwells in us. And then Solomon speaks as God being the God of grace. We see this in his confidence in pleading with God to hear his prayer and his request to hear the prayers of Israel at this temple in verses 28 to 30, reminding us that we, like he, can pray with confidence to God because he is gracious. His grace is something that is deeply rooted in the scriptures and the message of the gospel. Solomon did not yet know that gospel. And so our confidence can be even greater than his, knowing what we know now about the amazing, overwhelming grace of God. Those four things, the God to whom Solomon prayed. Now while the first part of Solomon's prayer has been rich theologically as it's spoken about those things, the God that Solomon prayed to, the second part of his prayer is no less rich. Verses 31 to 57 secondly teach us about the way Solomon prayed to God. Three things dominate his prayer. First note the humility of his approach. When Solomon began praying in verse 22, he was standing. At some point in his prayer, he got on his knees, as our text reports, Verse 54. Now there is no rule about what posture we ought to make in prayer because ultimately the posture is not as important as the heart. As long as the posture appropriately reflects the heart, that's what matters. And in his prayer it seems that both his heart posture and his posture were in agreement. He was on his knees. He was humbled. And why is Solomon so humbled at this point? 
Well, think about what's going on. It's the end of a seven-year building project and God has graciously come down and given a visible sign of his presence in the temple. The glory was so great that everyone had to evacuate. And this is not any old building project, but one that stands at the ends of God's promises made hundreds of years earlier to Moses, and between then and this moment was the conquest of the land, the time of the judges, the reigns of Saul and David, and so Solomon feels himself at this important turning point in all history where he has the privilege of seeing God fulfil these promises when other saints like Abraham and Isaac and Joseph and Jacob and Moses had to view them from afar. And here he was, marvelling at the amazing way in which God had kept his promises, that not only was there not one promise that failed to come to pass, not only that every promise was answered, but also that God gave over and above what he promised, as he often does, because of his kindness. The humility of his approach. Note the content of his requests. Solomon makes two requests which are foundational and necessary. The first is in verses 57 to 58. 58. It's probably the most important prayer that anyone could ever make. For his loving presence to be with his people. Not a felt presence, but a covenant presence of God. Not something from him, but himself. Moses knew the value of this. Remember how in Exodus chapter 32 and the story of the golden calf, while God was threatening to abandon his people but still give them the promised land. Moses prayed, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. To have the land and the victory without God is what's what's it worth? Asaph discovered in Psalm 73, after nearly becoming an atheist, Due to the trials he endured, he said, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire beside you. Imagine having your wife's cooking but not your wife. Imagine having your husband's money but not your husband. We must want God, not only what he gives us, we must want him. And Solomon seeks this presence of God for a particular reason. That he may incline our hearts to him. Solomon knows that we need God in order that we might walk before him. And to keep his word and be holy. Just like Jesus would later say in John 15, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. 
While we need more of God in order to be more like God and to do our, to do God's will, sadly our hearts are saying to us less of God and more of sin. That's why Solomon prays as he does. That we might have God. That his presence might be with us. And his second request is found in verses 59 to 60. And in effect that prayer was that God would continue to be the God of his people. He asks that his prayer might be heard and answered for his own sake and for the sake of the glory of God's name. Usually when we ask God to hear us when we pray, it's because we want something from him. But Solomon prays that God will get something instead. He asks that all the things he has prayed, that God would be a prayer-hearing, repentance-receiving God, is so that the people of the earth might know his name and that his name would be blessed among the nations. Now this is a prayer that God will not fail to answer. Not because he's vain or likes to be popular, but because all things exist for his glory and we should be praying for God to do everything he can in order to glorify himself. And so it's the light of this, in the light of this, that Solomon exhorts the people to obey God with their whole hearts. In verse 61, calling upon them to be walking in his statutes and keeping his commandments. And why does he exhort this? Because God is glorified when his people resemble him the most. God is glorified when his people resemble him the most. That's the key. God's name is praised among the nations when the nations see his people reflecting him and living out their call to be his people, holy and dearly loved. Then thirdly, quickly, verses 58 to 66, which are not about prayer, tell us of the feast that God, king and people enjoyed together. After the praying and the formalities, there came the eating. Lots of it. Since the whole nation had been called together, there had to be a lot of meat to go around. So we are told that 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep were enjoyed over seven days with the whole courtyard having to be consecrated for the job of a giant barbecue. We're told too that there were burnt offerings, grain offerings and fellowship offerings. Three kinds of offerings that had their place in the rituals that God had taught his people. Offerings for sin, offerings that were technically different, which are not so important to explain, but all had this in common. That even though they were free will gifts to God, offered as sacrifices, the one who brought them still had to be cleansed. By this we are taught the importance of worshipping God as cleansed people. We should not open our mouths to worship him unless we know the forgiveness of sins. And you cannot help when reading of this incredible celebration among God's people, but think of a future event that will far outweigh it. 
That event will be the marriage supper of the Lamb. That glorious day that is coming when God, King Jesus and all God's people will celebrate at a meal that will never, ever end. Well, how to bring this home? How do we apply this? Well, there's lots to note. For a start, let's think about prayer. Do you come to God in prayer, fixing your attention on him whose love for you does not change? One whose heart was set upon you in eternity past, who planned your salvation achieved by Jesus, a plan which he completed at great cost to himself, so that you might have the Holy Spirit living in you, applying the benefits of his finished work, so that you might be in the position of being an adopted child, one who is the guarantee or the down payment of all that God is going to do according to his unbreakable promises, purpose and plan? Is that what you have in your mind when you pray? So that when you come with your trials and troubles and pains and requests, then you have this God and his promise in mind. See, God's purpose and plans for us and his continued faithfulness to his purposes and plans are surely the basis for the confidence we have as we pray. Then apply it as we think about the temple itself now completed. Think upon the ramifications of God becoming a man and dwelling among us in Jesus. How do you think Solomon would respond to what we have seen God do for us in Jesus, Solomon's greater son. But more than that, imagine you could sit down with Solomon today and explain to him how it all worked out, that God not only once dwelt in the beautiful golden temple, but now God became a man in order to suffer and die and be the sacrifice for our sin, and more than that, God lives in his people so that we are the temples of the Holy Spirit. Try and explain that to Solomon. That your very body becomes the holy ground where God now lives. Imagine that. What a conversation that would be. But seeing you won't have that conversation with Solomon in this life, see if this week you can have that conversation with someone else. Imagine that. The God who said, I will dwell in this temple, now says, I will dwell in you. And then, of course, let's apply this to Jesus. What we've seen in this chapter is the king of God's people standing in the temple of God before the altar, interceding on behalf of the people. Solomon points us to Jesus. How often have I told you that? Who is greater, a greater king than Solomon. 
So it will be no surprise for you to hear that he is a king who likewise intercedes for his people. Romans chapter 8 verses 34 to 35 says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Now we could begin a whole new topic here in thinking about the intercessory work of Jesus and what Paul means at this point, but that would be dangerous in terms of time and would be a whole new sermon. So let me summarise it all to say this, to use a common phrase, it is what it is. Jesus prays for us. Jesus intercedes before the throne of God for us. Does that mean that he prays for us individually by name and being in eternity there is no time taken up? Or that he prays more generally for us, asking things like the strengthening and the purifying of the church? Well, that's unclear. What is clear is that he is not begging an unwilling father to do something, but is always asking in perfect agreement with the father's will. We also know that whatever he prays will be God's perfect will and will come to pass. We also know that he prays better for his church according to his perfect love and ability to sympathise with our weakness having experienced a human life himself. The people of Israel could pray to God at the temple because Solomon had gone ahead and built it and he prayed this prayer which God would answer in the positive as we see in the next chapter. But we have a greater confidence Because Jesus has gone ahead into the heavenly temple to justify us and to be our mediator. And he has given us his name by which we may approach the Father so that we might come before him with all our needs. And while Israel had confidence to pray toward the temple and know that God would hear them, we have a greater confidence because of who and where Jesus is right now, the very presence of God himself. So what do we learn from this model prayer in approaching God? We learn to address him rightly. We learn to depend upon his promises. We learn to remember his covenant love. We learn to come before him in absolute humility and be unafraid to ask him to glorify himself. But in all that, don't forget to marvel and wonder at the fact that you can come to him with a greater confidence than any of God's people did in the book of 1 Kings. Because the king who prayed for the way to be made open was himself prayed for and secured by none other than the king of kings in heaven itself who prays and intercedes for us.
Let's praise him. Let's pray. We bring thanks, almighty Heavenly Father, as we see this image of Solomon standing in the temple today, praying for and blessing his people, that this reminds us of the one who stands before the throne of God, the one who is our king, who prays for his people. We bring thanks that though we are weak and we fail, he is not weak and he does not fail. And though our prayers are often on the wrong tangent and often we come before you in the wrong attitude and we dump our needs upon you, forgetting to thank you for who you are, we thank you that the prayers of Jesus are perfect, always spot on, always according to your will. And so we look to you. Lord, we pray that we would have more of yourself. That's a prayer we need to pray. That we might know more of yourself. That we might be filled with all the fullness that comes through being connected to the King of Kings. We need you every hour and we pray for your grace to sustain us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.